0: So uh, coming to your question, I think, what is adaptation really? In layperson terms, I would say it's sort of like a process of adjustment uh, to climate change and its impacts. And uh, typically, we understand that to be a positive adjustment. So trying to reduce the impacts of climate change, whether it is on human systems or natural systems. my name is Chandni Singh, I'm a senior researcher at the Indian Institute for Human Settlements. I'm also a lead author for the IPCC and you are listening to Understanding the Future podcast.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Puneet Gandhi. Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future podcast. I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realized that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused. With Understanding the Future podcast, I interact with experts, entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground, as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground. We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India, and join it through the show note. Hope you enjoy the podcast.
2: Hello, and welcome to Understanding the Future podcast. Today, we have with us Dr. Chandran Singh. She is a senior researcher at the School of Environment and Sustainability at IIHS and a lead author in the IPCC's working group 2 on vulnerability and adaptation. She will help us understand about the adaptation pathways for India. Welcome to the show Chandni.
0: Thank you so much. Nice to be here.
2: Yeah and I think it's it's the one of the most hot topic right now especially after COP where adaptation became quite a huge priority and, and that is why I wanted to talk to someone who has worked around that as well. Thank you for taking our time. So I think I'll start with uh, the basic uh, question on the lines of what do we mean by adaptation and scientifically what risks and impacts are we looking at it when we talk about adaptation.
0: Yeah, I think uh, uh, lots of people, uh, as you rightly said, that adaptation really has come to the fore now and lots of people talking about it. Uh, I think the Paris Agreement in 2015 is really where adaptation came into its own, uh, compared to, uh, you know, the focus on mitigation. So uh, coming to your question, I think what is adaptation really, in layperson terms, I would say it's sort of like a process of adjustment uh, to climate change and its impacts. And uh, typically, we understand that to be a positive adjustment. So trying to reduce the impacts of climate change, whether it is on human systems or natural systems. So if you were to take an example to explain what adaptation is, I would say things like in human systems, we, we see farmers who are trying to uh, change their cropping patterns or completely shift to different crops because of changes in rainfall or in uh, natural systems like ecosystems, uh, an example of adaptation would be where trees actually in the Himalayas are shifting upwards because of increased temperatures. So the band in which trees can survive um, is also changing because of uh, warmer warmer summers and warmer winters. So these are examples of adaptation They can take place in the natural or the human world. Um, and hopefully maybe as we go go through our conversation, I can give you a bit more depth into some of these things. The only thing I'd like to just highlight, I think is that we often, uh, this is one of my pet peeves that people often confuse adaptation and adaptive capacity. So uh, it's important to understand that adaptive capacity as the term denotes is the capacity to adapt. So trying, it's almost like a potential. And adaptation, on the other hand, is a process of realizing that potential. And so unlike mitigation, sometimes we often uh, see an adaptation, it's really a process of change and adjustment. And you Mm -hmm. cannot say that a person or a household or a system has completely adapted. There is no end point in the sense of climate change is continuing and that change will always happen, whether it's positive or negative. And so adaptation is really a process. And that's where the challenge of adaptation really comes in. There's seemingly no end point to it yeah
2: that does help because i think uh i was just discussing with someone over the weekend that uh it's very easy to you know quantify mitigation per se because it's all about numbers and installation and it's more uh taken up by businesses as well but <laughs> when we talk about adaptation is there a way in which we can actually you know because it's a capacity it, First, we are talking, as you mentioned, adaptive capacity is one part of it, and then there's adaptation. But how can we quantify it for the larger world that, okay, this is what's happening and this is what needs to be done. And when it's a process, justifying it becomes much more complex. So maybe uh, some you can share so, some light on that.
0: Yeah, on one hand, of course, you're absolutely correct that mitigation has historically been more easy to quantify. It's more tangible, so more visible. Uh, You can report how many solar farms and gigawatts of renewable energy have been generated. And so you can, there's some measure of progress, right? You can, and various countries report that progress very well. So many tons of carbon dioxide have been sequestered, so many trees planted. Uh, So in that sense, of course, mitigation has, it's enviable when I look at it from an adaptation research point of view, that mitigation is at least able to report those quite clearly. But on the adaptation side, I think, yes, we continue to have this issue of not being this whole idea of not having a clear endpoint or goal, and that's why we're not able to report progress. But I would push back a bit against that to say, if we think of adaptation as pathways, we do know that there are some things and some interventions and solutions that we put into place that nudge us towards positive adaptation. So effective adaptation uh, that actually reduces the risks that people and ecosystems face. And there are some strategies because of either the strategy itself or actually the, the way it is implemented actually moves us towards what negative adaptation or what we call maladaptation. So from both research and actual implementation, we do actually have a very good sense of what are the things that move not just upwards and what are the things that make us fall downwards towards maladaptation. And some of the things are actually principles that we have been talking about even in uh, development studies. So things like there should be participation of the most vulnerable communities. There should be adequate um, monitoring and evaluation processes. You should have institutions that are fit for purpose. So those kinds of ideas, I think, very clear, I would say in the adaptation space. So Mm -hmm. although there is no numerical or quantitative value that you can put on adaptation to say that, you know, this is we have to adapt. If we are to adapt 100%, we've moved 30% and now moving 40%. um, I would say still, we do have a good sense of where we want to go in adaptation. It's basically at the end of the day, you want to reduce risks, that people and ecosystems face. That is the idea. The problem is that the risk itself is changing all the time.
2: Yeah. 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 And uh, I think absolutely risk is changing drastically. And that's uh, where uh, it was also good to see that loss and damage being brought to the light now, uh, because I think uh, at least the developing countries and underdeveloped countries have had the challenge of quantifying them. But uh, when things are now moving towards developed countries as well. That risk has been now talked about quite extensively. So, considering how COP27 went and now we have a loss and damage fund, how will it help us in moving forward?
0: Yes. uh, So, of course, uh, just maybe to take one step back before the loss and damage finance facility, I would just say that in February, March this year, we launched the IPCC Working Group 2 on Um, impacts vulnerability and adaptation. This was preceded by the IPCC's working group one report in uh, October last year, which is called the report which spells out, it's a code red for humanity. So together, these two reports really lay the landscape of the world seeing increasing climate risks and impacts. Uh, A world where we are going to see hotter summers, hotter winters, Uh, devastating floods and changing rainfall patterns and all of that has you know primary impacts on say human health on disease incidents on crop yields and then sort of secondary impacts on incomes and potentially migration and conflict in communities so that's the scientific evidence we have from the risk and impact space now if you look at now we if we come to um the cop 27 i was there at uh, the cop and there has been a very long fight on um, loss and damage and really this uh, fight has been spearheaded by you know the small island states the least developed countries and it's been a long fight to bring this understanding that losses and damages are already happening in certain countries and for certain people and we need to recognize and compensate for that loss and damage So just for people to hear, I think, I mean, to understand how is the loss and damage different from impacts, just impacts of climate change. And I would say that the difference really is that, at least in the UN system, uh, the the way losses and damages are defined to be different from climate change impacts is that these are impacts uh, beyond adaptation and mitigation. So it's really like after you have put in all your mitigation and adaptation measures the impacts of climate change that you are feeling are on as losses and damages. So there's been, I, uh, I mean, I want listeners to appreciate that there's been a long history to this. In 2013, there was the also international mechanism on loss and damage, which said, actually, we need to start putting money behind this. Uh, also, you know, assistance and capacity building technical and financial assistance around understanding and then addressing loss and damage. So it's been a very long journey and long struggle. And what is momentous is that at COP27, finally, there has been this recognition and also then this institution of a uh, loss and damage finance facility. On paper, yes, we should definitely applaud it. It's really great. But in practice, lots of commentators, and we have a lot of extremely, uh, like people in India also at the forefront of this uh, loss and damage uh, push for loss and damage, saying that actually we still need to see the money. There's a finance facility, where's yeah. this money going to come from? And hopefully, the past polluters really pay for this. So, I think that's where we are currently. It's a great step forward, but the actual yeah. work still needs to be done.
2: No, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree that it, it's a great thing, at least, which has started to, you know. Uh, Guide us in the right direction now. And hopefully, we'll be able to see this money soon enough so that uh, that can be uh, loss and damage can be taken care of as well, for especially uh, small island uh, states as well as uh, uh, underdeveloped countries. And uh, I, I do like that. Okay, this adaptation is one part of it after which loss and damage needs to be done. Now, if we have to go a bit into detail about that. How can those things be defined for any country state that, okay, this is how much adaptation was done and post that this kind of loss and damage has happened in this country. Uh, Is there a way to quantify that kind of system? Not even quantify, but even understand that kind of system because I think quantification might be a bit different over here.
0: Yeah, I think this is really where the cutting-edge science is happening. So, of course, there's lots of confusion about what, what amount of, for example, let's take an example really close to home, 2015 Chennai floods, 2018 Kerala floods. Uh, Lots of people rushed to blame this on environmental factors on climate change. And this is, you know, the moment where climate change becomes visible in our cities. But on the other hand, months after the and I think activists and, you know, civil society organizations really had a critical role to play where they said that no, It's not only, yes, of course, there was extreme rainfall, but there are also human factors such as just bad urbanization, of course, the way we manage our water resources and just unplanned um, built up area, whether it's in the Western Ghats, whether it's in Chennai on Chennai's wetlands. And so it's a mix of man-made and uh, environmental factors and climatic factors that have caused these floods. So delineating this becomes really difficult. And so how do you now, if you, I mean, scale this up to a global scale and where you're seeing floods and fires and droughts, how do countries ask for loss and damage finances when there are multiple things that are driving those losses and damages? And here people have been, why I said cutting edge science is happening is this whole world of attribution science where people are actually, at the heart of it, I mean, just asking simple questions. Would this, how, how would this hazard and disaster have played out if there was no climate change? And uh, if there is, right? So, just like yeah. a almost a, a what if kind of uh, a question that you ask. And very clearly, we see now the answers to some of those. So, like the South Asian uh, heat waves that happened earlier this year, they said they were 30% more likely because of climate change. So, you've got a sort of um, 30 times more likely, sorry. So you've got a sort of response from the scientific world saying that there is an amplification of hazards because of climate change and mm-hmm. these hazards we know and we can quantify the damages that they cause and that is the line that now is being taken up in the loss and damage community to say that if these hazards are caused by climate change, human induced climate change, then we need compensation for that. So it's it's Multiple lines of evidence being built up to make this argument. There are various legal cases that are being fought in different courts, both within countries and also in the International Court of Justice around this. And really, the whole world is looking towards this that if we have some legal precedence of compensation, that might open the doors to many more of these kinds of cases. So it's really a very, uh, it's a field that's really evolving, but I think we are moving in the right direction, both in terms of methods that we have to quantify this but also yeah. the legal space you know to sort some of these things out
2: yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting and I think uh, it's it's good to see that scientifically we are moving this forward uh, but if you can also bring up some examples or case studies which while well, you have showcased it for Chennai, any solutions across the world that are being used right now to think about how do we bring better resilience in urban as well as rural sector and how can we then shift from this adaptation to maybe uh, help the audience understand loss and damage across other sectors uh, in this uh, case scenario. That will be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, So I think if we think about and I I personally like to speak more about, of course, vulnerability, but then also adaptation solutions, like, let's think about where we are in the solution space. So if again, if I turn back to the IPCC working group Two report, we find overall, like this is a global finding that there is progress in adaptation planning and implementation. So, all the countries of the world now report some level of adaptation planning or implementation so that's a great first step i would say and that's really a direct outcome of both increasing risk but also the paris agreement and the push for uh, climate action so that's great um but the, the problem is that a lot of that adaptation is still what we call in planning stages so you'll do a vulnerability assessment you will uh, you know sensitize your government departments around climate change, but less happening on implementation. It's growing, but it's still less than what is required. And the other big trend that we see is that lots of actions are actually focused on single hazards. So you'll have a flood resilience plan, you'll have a heat action plan, and not really looking at hazards uh, systemically. One of the big findings that we had mentioned is this whole idea of the fact that hazards are compounding, so they come together. So you don't only have a heat wave, you will have heat and forest fires and drought, so multiple things compounding. And the other idea that um, they have cascading impacts. So a heat wave doesn't only affect human health, it will also have secondary impacts on crop yields, which leads to impacts on incomes, and mortality, morbidity. So it's really a cascade of impacts that one particular hazard will, you know, yeah. sort of let uh, let loose. Yeah. So these things are not currently being considered adequately in our adaptation actions. Now wow. to maybe just give you as you said, like some examples really from, I'm, I'll take the examples from India, because I'm just assuming most of the listeners yeah. are from India. So we had analyzed uh, about two years ago now. Um, urban adaptation actions across uh, all the cities in India that have a population of more than a million people. So these were, I think, around 53 cities have a population of more than a million. From those 27 cities, clearly demonstrated some kind of climate action, whether it's mitigation or adaptation. And what we saw that these cities, of course, so that's a good step, that's more than 50%. Um, So we're already seeing some amount of recognition and cities, of course, as we know in India, are couched in state action plans on climate change. So all states have their action plans, but actually this was evidence of cities taking a leadership really in in, um, adapting and mitigating. Now, what we saw is, of course, most cities actually do mention that they are exposed to multiple hazards. So extreme temperature. Drought, floods, these were the ones that were mostly reported and less reported were things like sea level rise and cyclones uh, interestingly. Uh, but so there's a good understanding understanding from cities that multiple things are causing uh, climate impacts, you know they they're reporting that. But then when we went into the actual adaptation actions that are being taken place, so for example, providing early warnings on heat, having a sophisticated, mm-hmm flood management system or preserving a uh, green cover in the city, uh, ensuring that the wetlands in the city are being managed sustainably. These kinds of adaptation options and solutions were there, but they again tend to focus on single hazard. So that realization of compounding hazard is there in the in the risk side, but it doesn't move into the solution side, which was, it's a gap and I think it can be filled, but it's it remains a gap at least from our study. The second big thing we found is that um, there's a lot of emphasis on capacity building around 85% of all the plans that we assessed uh, in these cities spoke about capacity building. Also, 75% spoke about um, having some kind of policy or plan that they are building capacity around, you know, like they have some Mm -hmm. mechanisms for planning long term. Yeah. But if you look at the other things that need to make these plans successful, for example, finances, only 37% of these uh, cities spoke about any kind of financing mechanisms, only 44 or 45% spoke about, uh, you know, like engaging citizens for behavior change. So I think there is there are some gaps that we were able to identify. And really, that's, to me, the next step of what cities have to do to adapt. Um, Yeah, and just finally, maybe I'll just say a bit on, uh, because I've spoken so much about cities, I'd like to say that actually, adaptation in India is predominantly rural. That is uh, not by accident, it is very purposeful, and rightly so, because um, uh, despite the reducing percentage of GDP that villages and uh, the rural economy you know contributes to india's gdp i think it's now around yeah. 25 to 27% but uh, around 55% of our population is still dependent on uh, agriculture and allied sectors for their yeah. incomes so there has really from 2008 when we had our national action plan on climate change there's been a very strong focus on building resilience in rural areas and um, that has usually tended of course uh, tended to focus on sectors like agriculture Uh, sustainable water use, and of course, um, allied sectors like livestock and horticulture and all that. And there, I have done work in the past that has shown that actually, some of our public uh, policies that are not at all climate related. So, for example, Narega, which is our rural employment guarantee scheme, or other watershed development schemes, or even schemes around women empowerment, they actually have a lot of co benefits for adaptation and reducing climate risk. So there is, Mm -hmm. I would say actually, a lot of positive examples of adaptation in rural areas. But now is the moment when we have to really think about uh, not only having solutions that are looking that are based on past trends, like heat is increasing, you know, we've had so many heat waves from These are the kinds of things you see in some of these documents that you have had so many heat waves from 2010 to 2020, and so we will have XYZ actions. The need now really is to look at future projections of, for example, again, heat. We know very clearly that wet bulb temperatures are going to go up. So that's humid heat is going to increase. How are our systems really thinking of that? So it's really now looking, let's some of these solutions that are there currently, both in rural and urban spaces, are sort of reactive and look back at trends. I would say that now we need to look at future projections and how we need to adapt to that. Very difficult, uh, yeah, the reality of climate change in the future, which is going to be much more taxing than what it is currently.
2: No, absolutely. That's that's pretty interesting. And you've covered uh, quite a bit of uh, thoughts over there as well. And I I would specifically like to understand more about, uh, you know, you brought up a very interesting topic of uh, finance into this whole thing. And uh, urban uh, sector specifically is where they've still not allocated finance into it. And uh, while I think we can dovetail to the next segment where we talk about Mm -hmm. what are the adaptation pathways for India, if there can be some amount of... uh, that on what all financially things are possible for urban india when we are talking about resilience uh, that would be pretty interesting to know
0: yeah all right yeah so definitely i think repeatedly this comes up that uh, finance for adaptation or climate action i would say especially in cities is one of the key barriers right to uh, climate action and uh, it's not uh, so there are a couple of things i'd like to unpack that so there's one of course the fact that a lot of uh, uh, at least in the indian system right the way cities are governed and managed they sit yeah. so they're so embedded in states that they have very little autonomy in terms of the finances they can access and then you know the budgets that they have for climate action so there is that challenge exists to Sort of deal with that challenge, what many cities and even international actors have gone to the root of having sectoral policies or projects, I would say, sorry, uh, sectoral projects that uh, the partnership will be between the city government and an international donor and perhaps a local implementing agency. It's a smart way to subvert this issue of uh, cities not uh, having enough budgets and finances. But what it leads us to is, you are uh, dependent on projects coming in, and these projects often come in three year five year cycles, and then there's very little learning from project to project. So okay. that um, almost institutional amnesia, right, you just don't learn from one project to another, I think is almost doing us a disservice where you have these flood resilience programs they'll happen for 3 years then they stop and then they start for another 5 years so there needs to be of course the state is doing a lot but this drip drip of funds right it, it, it's yeah. it's not it's it's very unsteady and that leads to a lot of issues around human resources that you can have in the city government to actually implement uh, some of these projects so i think that is one thing uh, the second thing related to this is there's also low flexibility in the kind of funding that comes. A lot of funding comes with a lot of riders that the funders will, of course, have and what kinds of implementation actions you can uh, take place. For example, and this is slightly removed from climate adaptation, but lots of lessons from the disaster management space where uh, the big multilateral and bilateral, uh, bilaterally funded projects come with a focus on built infrastructure, the whole idea of building back better after disasters. And so what gets prioritized, it's things like roads, schools, houses. And uh, while that all of that is extremely important, say after mm-hmm. the cyclone in coastal Orissa or Tamil Nadu, uh, it takes away from um, other interventions that are equally important, but maybe not as visible. So things like, Uh, building livelihoods, ensuring that villages and cities retain their green spaces, you know, after Cyclone, for example, the trees are absolutely devastated, there is no extra money spent really on that, because that takes a much longer time and beyond these project cycles. So I think there are lessons from the DRR space that we need to take for adaptation, to see how these external finance really comes with its own uh, riders and that to me and so also you know then the agenda setting for adaptation is happening somewhere else and not not within the cities and not with the local communities which is a, which is a challenge um so that's my uh, i think and that's again finance is one space that we are really seeing a lot of um, i mean there's a lot of concern about inadequate finance poorly fit finance and then this whole issue of who decides what to do with that finance
2: yeah. True, true, true. No, I, I absolutely understand and I absolutely know that uh, challenge because we have been welling mm. into that challenge as well as we move forward. Uh, it's pretty uh, interesting to see how we are going to solve it. Uh, but I think uh, coming to one of the last questions is on the lines of, uh, I think this is a vast field. This it requires a lot of Understanding of different concepts, ideas, as well as skill sets to be taken forward. And if we can get from you, what are the different skill sets required to work in this field to develop good solutions as well as good research uh, for the upcoming India? Because I think it's developing at a pretty good pace considering where globally everyone is standing. So how what all things can be considered uh As a skill set which anyone can learn to be part of this uh, field of work.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, we are now living in this era of many people calling it right, these poly crises, multiple crises simultaneously occurring. We've had the pandemic, climate change and climate breakdown, biodiversity, erosion and collapse and so there's we are living in this period of Deep change, and I think the kinds of skills we need to uh, bring to find or even imagine solutions and futures in this from this world, present day that we are in, they have to be first of all interdisciplinary. And while, and of course, everyone's talking about interdisciplinary, but also very rooted in certain disciplines. So, if if adaptation finance and climate finance is something that calls to a person, I would say disciplines like economics have to really anchor it but then of course be very interdisciplinary in trying to understand other ways of valuation for example thinking of human well-being and quality of life and not only putting a monetary value for example on yeah. on uh, uh, adaptation and the benefits it provides so i would really s- highlight this first thing of for example if you're a student who's listening to this really strengthen your disciplinary home, whether it's climate change, environmental studies, or something as different as design, architecture, urban planning. I think there's a range of disciplines that can talk to this this moment of multiple crises. And then really think about how you can branch out from your discipline to bring in a more interdisciplinary outlook. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think it's more actually not so much for learners, but for teachers and trainers to think about mainstreaming climate change within whatever sector you're in. So in whatever teaching you're doing, it could be teaching in hospitals, like the medical professions, or even you know those kinds of degrees where we aren't thinking about climate change I think those are some of the big gaps in our education and people I mean trainers and teachers listening to this perhaps could think of that I mean the story of heat is a story of the medical profession really and emergency workers and how hospitals have to be planned so you need hospital management folks to understand uh, increasing uh, heat risk so you know it's really trying to for us also to reimagine who Uh, has to like climate change is not something that only climate change researchers and practitioners have to think about but it's really everyone and then all right so just to highlight as you said like what are the skills per se I would again say that a good understanding of some kind of I would not say A deep understanding, but your ability to understand climate models and the risks and impacts that are projected in the future is something that I find lacking in many, many, many students and, uh, you know, uh, people interested in adaptation. There's, There's a lot of value in being able to speak to different communities in the climate world. So a good place to start is the IPCC Working Group. One report, they've also actually come out with a great a uh, summary for all reports. So it's a summary that is aimed at laypersons to pick up what the working group, one report on climate science says. So I would really invite people to look at that. So it's really being open to the different kinds of ways that people are addressing this climate change question. So doing a bit of understanding of the models and what they're saying, you don't have to actually become a modeler to do that. And uh, then finally, seeing where in the solution space you fit some people rural areas and agriculture might be the calling for some people it might be actually cities and how you're building your houses that might be a calling so i feel there's a space for everyone it's really for people to find that space for themselves that talk to their skill set
2: yeah no absolutely i i do agree that it's it's important for us to also make sure that whatever field you are in make it a highlight for you to be able to take forward exactly. in all different uh, ways when there is a polythesis that is happening Uh, Thank you so much for your time and uh, I think if uh, as we are closing, if you think that anything needs to be highlighted or spoken about or we have not covered yet and you would like to highlight it, uh, I think we can do it in this segment.
0: Sure. Um, Yeah, I think we've covered various things. One small thing that uh, we haven't spoken about, which also I'd like people to think about is everything, what uh, there's one principle I often think of that underpins a lot of the conversation on climate change, and that's really inequality and difference. So some people are more impacted than others. Some systems are more impacted than others. Some people have more capacity than others to deal with climate change. And our job as researchers and implementers is really, first of all, I think as researchers, trying to understand that difference and that inequality, and then as practitioners to sort of find ways to address some of these differences. So it's not as simple as you've got a tech solution, and you implement that and you meet your climate goals. So electric vehicles, low emissions, renewable energy, and that yeah. leading to uh, a low carbon transport future. Uh, yes, that can, but there are issues of unequal access, there are issues of who can afford it, who has availability of charging stations. So it's really I would like listeners to always keep that inequality, or unequal access lens when they are thinking about both the problems and the solutions.
2: Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. I think uh, this was quite an interesting episode of thinking about adaptation because I think uh, we have not not covered a lot on adaptation and I think this uh, surely becomes a good segue to understand more about it. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Chand.
0: Thank you, Puneet, really nice speaking and hope there's a lot more coverage of adaptation on your great podcast.
2: Thank you
0: so much.
1: Thank you for tuning into the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Centre for Cities and registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at CUBE and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.